Good morning. It's uh, great to see everyone here today. Church Online, welcome. Thank you for joining us. My name is Mike Murray. My wife, Nikki, and I are directors of Chi Alpha Christian Fellowship, a campus ministry at Northern Michigan University. And I also have the privilege of serving as a deacon uh, here at Silver Creek and occasionally standing in for Pastor Kevin to share God's word to us. And I'm grateful for that opportunity this morning. A friend of mine who's also a minister often says, I don't preach sermons, I deliver messages from God. And that's, uh, he says it with conviction, I appreciate that conviction and also the understanding that, that really whenever we get together and open God's word, this is his word to us, this is his message to us. And I believe he has something for each one of us this morning, individually and collectively. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what God does among us today. I want to start this morning with a question. I guess it's a personal question. Does anybody here regularly grocery shop on Sundays? Good. Uh, I, I, if, you, if you don't do it yet, I, I don't recommend that you start. Because I've had to do it a couple of times, and it's, uh, it's usually a madhouse. So uh, I like to find a different time to go. Uh, but if you do go to the grocery store this morning, one of the, the things that you can buy is eggs that come from free-range chickens. You know what I'm talking about? I see some heads nodding. Um, this is a big deal for some people, and uh, I think it's a big deal for the chickens as well. Uh, I'm, not sure it, I'm not sure the eggs taste any better, but I imagine that the chickens appreciate the opportunity to get out and stretch their legs and get some, get some sunshine. I think it's a big deal uh, for them. Uh, when, when I hear the phrase free range, it reminds me of my childhood. Um, you know, when I was little, we didn't have free range grocery options. We had free range kids. Anybody, anybody you know, uh, relate to that? Uh, the entire neighborhood where I grew up was free range. Uh, it, was, it was a different time. Um, my, my dad's here this morning, and I, and I want to say this, this was not neglect on the part of parents. It was just a different time. Uh, we, we lived our lives, especially in summer, without a ton of adult supervision. Uh, we, would, we would go fishing at the lake. We would build tree forts in the woods. And I'm sure some of my dad's tools are still in the woods behind the house, <laughs> rusting. Um, another thing we did, we played a lot of sports, and uh, we, didn't have a, we didn't have a lot of parents around to coach us on the finer points of those sports. We didn't have parents around to serve as referees. So as you can imagine, this is a great, uh, a great way to learn conflict resolution. Um, in, in seventh grade at Champion Middle School, I tried out for the basketball team, not because I really loved basketball, but it was, it was just the thing to do. And uh, as a free-range basketball player up to that point, I wasn't particularly skilled in you know, shooting and dribbling and the, the things associated specifically with that, that sport, but I was a pretty good athlete, and I made the team. I'm not sure how I made the team. I think it's because the coach knew my parents and was just giving, you know, doing them a favor. But I made the team, and uh, I have to say, I sat the bench most of that year. I spent a lot of time watching basketball. Uh, but there's one highlight that, that stays with me, it sticks with me to this day. We were playing against our biggest rival, 
National Mine. And Kay knows what I'm talking about. If you're at Champion, National Mine was the big, the big rival. And in this game, we destroyed them. We, we just ran them out of the gym. Um, in, that, in that one game, Steve Kangas and I combined for 40 points. So this is unheard of in seventh grade basketball. If you've been to a seventh grade basketball game, like if you get into the 20s, you're pretty lucky. But in this one game, the two of us combined for 40 points. Steve had a career high 38, and, <laughs> and I had the rest. This was my one highlight of the year, I mean, like my one basket of the year. So uh, it was a great game for Steve and I. Um, another thing I remember about seventh grade basketball, and, and this is the real reason I told that nice little story. The thing I remember is the locker room scene before each game. You know, up until then, playing sports, it was just kind of ru kids running around. But in, in seventh grade basketball, it was the first time I experienced a pregame locker room. And the coach comes in after warm-ups and says, all right, everybody listen up. And everybody stops what they're doing. It's all eyes on the coach. He says, all right, here's the starting five. We're coming out in a full-court press. Uh, we're going to go man-to-man -man D. Watch number 11. He loves to shoot from the right elbow. Uh, if they go zone, this is what we're going to do. It's, it's all business. Um, out of all the stuff we talked about throughout that season and practice, other games, watching tape, this is the info that we need to know right now. This is what's important. This is the stuff that really matters. And if you've played sports, you know, you know you've experienced that pregame locker room. If you've performed in concerts or plays, it's a variation on the same theme. You know that the last words of a coach or a director or a conductor before leaving the locker room or before that curtain goes up is prime time for the leader to reinforce the key points, to say this is what's important. And here's the connection between that locker room scene and the reason we get together today, the reason that we're here. That locker room scene is what I see playing out in Matthew chapter 28, in the Gospel of Matthew, the very end of that story. So Matthew was a guy, uh, he was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. He was in that inner circle. Um, you know, he, was, he walked with Jesus for three years. Matthew had been a tax collector for the Roman government, which made him basically a traitor or an outcast among his own people. But Jesus, Jesus went to him, he, he called Matthew to follow him, he transformed his life, and then later the Spirit of God prompted Matthew to write his version of the story of Jesus. So this is what we have today. In, in your Bible, the Gospel of Matthew, this is Matthew's story of Jesus, the, the good news of the Gospel, good news according to Matthew. So in chapter 28, this is the end of the story. Matthew has written about Jesus' life, starting with his genealogy, going, you know, tracing Jesus' you know, line back as far as you can. And now we're at the end of the story, and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is standing before them alive and well, which is amazing to them. So I want to read Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the age. So here's, here's the background in these verses. Much to his followers' amazement, Jesus has risen from the grave. This is something they didn't expect. He was executed on a Roman cross on a Friday afternoon, and then the third day, that Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. And now this, this scene here in Matthew 28 is 40 days later. Uh, Jesus has gathered his disciples for one final locker room speech before he returns to the right hand of the Father. This is his opportunity to leave them with the essence of three years of ministry. These, these people have been with him for three years. They've, they've learned from him. They've seen how to live life. They've maybe maybe come to a point, maybe where they recognize he, he might be the son of God. And this is what he leaves them with. He reserves this message for the moment when his followers would be paying attention with their entire beings. If somebody raises, is risen from the dead and is standing before you, you're going to pay attention, right? So this is, this is a scene. This is what's important. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. These verses we know as the Great Commission. This is Jesus commissioning his followers to go out as his ambassadors. And it's a very famous missions verse. Missionaries love this. I, I love global missions. And I read these sentences, and I see, the, I see the word go, and I see the phrase all the nations, and it gets me excited. But that is not the heart of these verses, the core of Jesus' message here in the Great Commission is the command to make disciples. People who study Greek grammar can look at that paragraph and say the, the core, the central element of the Great Commission is to make disciples. And we know this is important because Jesus saved it for this moment when he knew that everyone would be hanging on every word. So this, this Sunday, this morning, we are starting our July sermon series titled Beyond the 52. And what we mean by this is that being a follower of Jesus, being a part of his church, is much more than showing up on the 52 Sunday mornings of the year. That's an important part of it. But we have to go beyond the 52. Being, uh, being a follower of Jesus, being, being the church, is 365 days a year. It's the 313 days besides the Sundays as well. So we want to get beyond the 52 because Jesus is calling us to something more. He's calling us into his way of life. Pastor Kevin in the next couple of weeks will talk about loving others and being connected with each other. But uh, my topic today comes from this part right here, Matthew chapter 28, disciples making disciples. And this is a 365 day a year job. It's a big task. It's not reserved just for Sunday mornings. And this is the Jesus way of life. This is the Jesus plan. And we know it's important to him. Uh, so I want to look at some scripture today and talk about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to make disciples, and then how we're able to do that. So my first point is this. Jesus invites us to be his disciples. Pretty straightforward, right? Jesus invites us to be his disciples. Just like anything else in the kingdom of God, it begins with an invitation. Jesus, uh, Jesus comes to us, you know, God comes to us, 
and says, come, come as you are, come be with me, join my family, join my army, be my representatives, be my ambassadors. It's an invitation. And the call to discipleship starts the same way. The call to be a disciple or a student or an apprentice of Jesus begins with an invitation. We see this throughout the, the Gospels. And I want to look at one, one place in particular uh, in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Mark writes, One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. So the professional fishermen. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me. I want you to remember that phrase, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat, repairing their nets, their fishermen as well. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. This is a very clear invitation, right? Come, follow me. But it's even more meaningful and amazing when we understand the cultural elements that are at work here. There's, there's more happening here than what we can see on the page. So I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking that before we move on. Around the time of Jesus in the Jewish world, there were teachers who were known as rabbis. And by this point in Jesus' ministry, he's gaining a reputation as a rabbi. And what this, what this looked like is these men, in, in that culture it was always men, they dedicated themselves to teaching their scriptures and their Jewish law to other, other younger men to carry on the traditions. And this idea of a teacher investing vast amounts of time and effort into a group of students, was, it was just part of their, their culture for generations at this point. This master teacher, this rabbi, would be surrounded by a group of students learning from him and learning to be like him. In other words, learning to be disciples. And there were certain benchmarks along the way for, for those who wanted to go into this kind of way of life, uh, especially the parents who wanted their, their sons to have a religious life. They would put their kids into religious schools at the age of five to start memorizing the Torah. So if you, if you have your Bible, you can look. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, those are the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Torah. And they would start memorizing the Torah at age five. Like, I don't, I don't want to think about starting to memorize the Torah at my current age. But these five-year-olds would start memorizing the Torah, and they would do this for years. And then at around age 12 or 13, there would be a cutoff. Uh, there would be some testing, and the top students, the best students, would be advanced to the next school. And the ones who didn't make the cut would be sent home to learn a trade, usually the trade of, of their parents. So this second school starts at age 12 or 13, and it goes for another five or six years. And they move beyond the Torah into the prophets and other writings. And they would, they would study these. And then at around age 18, there would be another cutoff. They would have some more testing and the best of the best would move on and the rest would go home to learn a trade. And if they made the cut at age 18, 
they would have the privilege of going out and finding a rabbi that they wanted to learn from. And it wasn't just content that they were looking for. They would look for a rabbi that they wanted to be like. It's not just information. They, they wanted to find somebody that they wanted to be like. They would look for a rabbi. Uh, this is you know, the truest sense of, of the word discipleship, of being a disciple, of being an apprentice. They would say, I want to learn from this person how to be like this person. That's, that was the process. So those who were, who were interested at age 18 and studying under a rabbi would essentially submit themselves to an interview process. They would identify a rabbi that they wanted to, to learn from, and they would, they would sit down for an interview, and the rabbi would quiz them on their knowledge. It was a very selective process. Um, and finally, the rabbi, if the rabbi decided to accept a student, to accept a disciple, to accept an apprentice, he would offer the invitation by saying, come, follow me or follow me. That was the key phrase, follow me. That was the formal sign that they were accepted as disciples. And notice what Jesus does. These other rabbis required potential disciples to, to come to them and to demonstrate their worth. But Jesus instead goes out to the fishermen, to a tax collector like Matthew, Ordinary people, people who'd already washed out of the religious training, Jesus goes to them and says, come, follow me. It's the same phrase. He's telling them, you don't choose me. I choose you. I choose you. Come, watch me. Learn from me. Be with me. I will teach you and then send you out. And he does the same thing for us. He does the same thing for us. We don't have to prove our, our worthiness to Jesus. We don't have to talk about the credentials that we have, if we have any. He says, I am good enough. I am worthy. You can get in on my credentials. And that's what Jesus does. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard writes about what it means to, to be a disciple of Jesus. And for one thing, he makes the case that Maybe we should stop using the word disciple and use the word apprentice instead. In, in our culture, apprentice might be more easily understood because uh, many workers in our society learn a trade or learn a profession through an apprenticeship. So it, it might make more sense. Um, and he also says that this master-apprentice metaphor shows us how to become one. It shows us how to become an apprentice. Willard writes, but if I am to be someone's apprentice, there is one absolutely essential condition. I must be with that person. I must be with that person. If I am Jesus' disciple, I am with him to learn from him how to be like him. You must be with that person. Jesus' earliest disciples, the ones we read about in the Gospels, were physically with him. They were walking with him. They were talking with him. They were eating with him. They learned his body language. They learned his patterns of speech. They learned his sense of humor. And when he left them and ascended to heaven, that apprentice, apprenticeship that they'd shared through physical proximity was transferred to the spirit realm. 
through the infilling of the Holy Spirit, they would continue that relationship. They would continue that master-apprentice relationship by his presence and guidance. And this relationship is available to all apprentices of Jesus, including us. So we can be with Jesus spiritually, if not physically. So that's the first point. Jesus invites us to be his disciples. The second main point is this. Jesus expects his disciples to make even more disciples. The words I want us to think about here are in and through. Jesus works in us so that he can work through us. Whatever Jesus does in us, he wants to do through us. And Jesus expects his disciples to make even more disciples. We saw in reading Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations. He's saying, you, my disciples, my apprentices, go out and make even more apprentices. And later in the New Testament, we see this, this pattern kind of developed by the Apostle Paul and by others. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1, and you should imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Jesus sets the example. Paul looks at Jesus and imitates that, and he's saying, you imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Elsewhere, Paul reveals this pattern to Timothy, one of his own apprentices. And this is a, this is a key verse in, in entire, the entirety of Scripture about this discipleship process. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, 2. This is Paul writing to Timothy. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. So it's, you know, it's, not, it's not one of the verses we memorize, right? It's not, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. But in this one verse, we see the pattern of disciple-making. We have four spiritual generations represented here. So let's, let's look at it. Again, Paul writing to Timothy. Paul writes, you, Timothy, have heard me, Paul, teach things. So in this phrase, we see two spiritual generations. Paul, spiritual father. Timothy, spiritual son. And then Paul tells tells Timothy to teach other trustworthy people. So now we have a third generation. If you want to call them Paul's spiritual grandchildren, Timothy's spiritual children, you can do that. And then finally, these other trustworthy people, the third generation, can pass these teachings on to others, a fourth generation. This is how it works. Four generations of, of discipleship. Paul teaches Timothy, who teach other trustworthy people, who then teach others. And if we do this, if we follow this pattern of making disciples, we change the world. We reach the world for Jesus. Jesus designed his church to be a disciple-making movement. If we are not making disciples, this is evidence that we're not operating according to his design. I'll say that again. Jesus designed his church to be a disciple-making movement. If we're not making disciples, this is evidence that we're not operating according to his design. Jesus said, make disciples. He didn't say, build big buildings, put on big productions, and hire professionals to do all the work. He looked at his apprentices, 
normal, everyday people like us and said, go and make more apprentices. One of the, uh, one of the elder statesmen in Chi Alpha, that's a, that's a polite way of saying an older guy, one of, the older, one of the elder statesmen in Chi Alpha is a guy named Harvey Herman. He's, he's been in campus ministry for oh, over 40 years. And he wrote a book called Discipleship by Design. And in that book, he makes the case that the way to reach the world for Jesus is through one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And to illustrate the effectiveness of this method, the Jesus method, he creates two characters for his readers. On one hand, we have what he calls the super evangelist. And then the other hand, we have the faithful discipler. Got a warning here. There's some math coming. So just, just be aware that there, there's some math. So we start out with the super evangelist. And Harvey says this person preaches the gospel to, to huge crowds every day. And every day when he preaches, 1,000 people come to faith in Jesus. So super evangelist is preaching every day. 1,000 people a day come to the Lord. At the end of a year, how many, how many believers do you have? 365,000, right? 1,000 a day for a year. And then, you know, it's a remarkable achievement. At the end of 10 years, just multiply that by 10. 3,650,000. 10 years later, we double it to 7,300,000 people. These are incredible numbers. And this super evangelist keeps going day after day after day, preaching the gospel, seeing a thousand people come to faith in Christ. Herman then introduces us to the faithful discipler. In the first year, the faithful discipler finds two people that she can invest in following the model of 2 Timothy 2.2. Just two people. She introduces them to Jesus. She disciples them in his ways. So at the end of one year, the super evangelist over here has 365,000 converts. And the faithful discipler and these two others, we have three disciples. But then in the next year, those three each find two others. So the end of one year, you're up to nine disciples or disciplers. The, the third year, you're up to 27. This pattern continues with the disciples, disciplers tripling every year. Then through year 10, you've got about 59,000 disciples, still far behind the, uh, the work of the super evangelist. But by year 14, the numbers are nearly even. And after the 15th year, the work of the faithful discipler, who's multiplying herself has produced more than 14 million disciples, far surpassing the work of the super evangelist, who's still reaching 1,000 people a day. So this is the method of 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul to Timothy to other trustworthy people to others. If we disciple a few people at a time and train them to do likewise, God's kingdom will grow beyond our wildest expectations. So Jesus invites us to be his disciples. Jesus expects his disciples to make even more disciples. And the final point is this. Jesus empowers his disciples to fulfill his mission. He empowers his disciples to fulfill his mission. Jesus has not left us to our task empty-handed. And to help us understand this, I want to look at 
uh, John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. This is Jesus speaking to his apprentices. He says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. We'll come back to that word, remain. Remain in me, I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. This is Jesus speaking. He's speaking a promise. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So depending on the Bible translation you're, you're reading, you might come across the word abide in place of remain. Either way, the original Greek word here that John used in this passage means to remain in one place at a given time with someone, to dwell with someone. John uses this word to, to express a reciprocal indwelling. We are in Jesus and Jesus is in us. We linger in him, he lingers in us. We live in him, he lives in us. Dick Brogdon uh, is a, a friend of mine who, who wrote his PhD dissertation on the idea of abiding, abiding in Jesus. And he's, he describes abiding as extravagant daily time with Jesus. Setting aside time in our schedule every day to be with Jesus, to, to pray, to read scripture, to memorize scripture, to meditate on scripture, to worship to journal, to fast, other, other spiritual disciplines. He says, extravagant daily time with Jesus. And as we spend time in the presence of Jesus, we receive life from him. And the life we receive is not meant to be hoarded. Remember, in and through. God wants to work in us so he can work through us. This life that we receive from spending time with Jesus gives us the power to bear fruit. And John writes about fruit uh, in, in this passage. This is an external yield that can be harvested. And John is emphasizing that the fruit of abiding, the product of being with Jesus, is a harvest of people. It's a harvest of disciples. Jesus is giving us the keys to fulfilling the Great Commission. He told his followers to take his good news to everyone, everywhere, to the ends of the earth. He said, go to your schools, go to your workplaces, go to your neighborhoods. And he told us to make disciples of all the nations. And here in John 15, he's giving us the means to accomplish that mission. It's one of the great promises in scripture. Our doing for Jesus flows out of our being with Jesus. If we spend extravagant time in the presence of Jesus every day, he guarantees that we will make disciples. So what's the application? What, what do we do with this knowledge? Like knowledge is almost useless unless we do something with it, right? I wanna say that application is not one size fits all. So not all of us will react to something like this in the same way. But I wanna give you three quick possibilities in terms of application. Number one is this. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring revelation. What do I mean by that? You just ask God to show you what he wants you to do with this. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He can see into the dark corners of our, of our hearts that we don't even want to acknowledge are there. He, he knows how he wants to develop us. Maybe he's calling you to make a commitment 
to be a true apprentice, to be a true apprentice of him. You know, maybe we are in a position where we've already trusted in Jesus as our savior, but we've never looked at him as our rabbi, as the one to show us how to live. And maybe that is what he wants you to do today. So the first, first thing, ask the Holy Spirit to bring revelation. Second thing is this, start abiding in Jesus. If the task of making disciples seems too difficult or even impossible, and if we're honest, we're probably somewhere in there. If it seems too difficult or impossible, this is a sign that Jesus is opening our eyes to the task. It's a sign that Jesus is drawing us closer to him because he knows the only way we can do what he's commanded us to do is if we abide in him. So make the commitment to spend time every day in his presence. And then the third thing is this. Start observing the world through eyes of faith. Start observing the world through eyes of faith. Disciples who make disciples are always looking for the next opportunity to make disciples. Disciples who make disciples are looking at the world through the eyes of Jesus, saying, who is ready? Who is ready to hear this message? Who is ready to follow Jesus? Who's ready to learn from Jesus how to live their life? So if you feel drawn to the idea of making disciples but have no idea where to start, ask him to give you his eyes. Make yourself available, and Jesus will bring people into your life who are ready to meet him and learn to live like him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message that you've given to us. We thank you for revealing yourself through scripture. We thank you for the privilege that we have to join you in your work. And we thank you for your invitation to be disciples. We understand your command, your calling to make disciples, and we thank you for the way that you empower us to fulfill this mission. So here at the end of this service, we just sit quietly before you, and we invite the Holy Spirit to bring revelation to our lives. Help us to pick out the one or two or three things that, that you might be speaking to us through this message today. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your presence among us. We thank you for giving us the power to live the life that you're calling us to live. And we ask as we go about our week that you will give us new eyes to see our world, that we won't just see random people walking around or random people that we work with or go to school with, but we will see them through eyes of faith, that we will see them as you see them, as people who are destined to be in your kingdom, that we will see them as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask as we leave this morning that, that the message that you've spoken to us will not end here, 
but that you will bring it to mind, bring it to our hearts through the coming week, that you'll continue to speak to us and transform us into the people that you've created us to be, and that is disciples of you who make other disciples. We pray these things in Jesus' name.